Welcome everybody to the November 3rd edition of Cascadian Views, one I'm going to get posted relatively quickly because the election is just a couple days away. So uh, some of us, mostly Dan and uh, Chris, I believe, have actually been out there doing some election things. I have phone banked. I have not gone and knocked on any doors, though. Uh, so we're going to talk about that this week, our last chance to really put our finger on the scales uh, for that topic. And then there has also been a rather disturbing two or three week trend here. It's actually longer than that, but it's come to a pointed head in the last two or three weeks of right-wing terrorism. And it continued up until yesterday, I believe it was, uh, when a self-described incel who ranted against uh, you know women, called them all sluts and whores, shot up a uh, yoga studio in Tallahassee. Yeah. Before yeah. that, there was the mail bombing campaign that we saw, which was truly staggering in the number of confirmed incidents. There have been uh, the Proud Boys beatings in New York uh, that came up not too long ago. It's been a huge, huge trend in a, well, frankly, terrifying way. So uh, I, I think that's going to take up all our time this week. Uh, we planned a, a pretty light show, so I guess we'll just get into it. What do you want to start first? I guess chronologically, we should probably let's go with the terror and what's been happening and uh, the just the awfulness of it. Get into what specifically has been going on. So the suspect in the bombing campaign was uh, Caesar Malik. Am I getting the right uh, last name on that? That sounds like, yeah, I'm trying to think. It was uh, the guy himself. He's kind of, a, I'm trying to think of the uh, particular Caesar ethnicity Sayoff. behind Sayoff. That's it. There you go. Um, the ethnicity is a little bit up in the air. He is um, a self-proclaimed member of, I believe it was the Sioux Nation down in Florida. I think it was Seminole, Seminole. but yeah, they said they had nothing to do with it. No idea. I had never heard of them before. He has been uh, active waving the banner of Native Americans for Trump. That was some of the many, many, many bumper stickers he had plastered all over his van. Um, And CNN has found footage from their archives of him at Trump rallies with the Native Americans for Trump sign. It seems to all be a, well, a LARP. Basically, he's, you know, pretending to be somebody he's not in real life. Yeah. And, yeah, it just... Awful. I mean, uh, the way that it tracked so closely with uh, the targets and the people that publicly Trump has been picking fights with for months and years. Uh, first coming public with uh, the bomb that arrived at George Soros's home, and then the Clintons, the Obamas, CNN. Uh, the same. Waters got two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why would somebody send a bomb to Maxine Waters anyway? But and also, why did the other one get routed through Los Angeles? I'm not a hundred percent sold. That's the same bomber. Hmm. Well, that's that's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, that would be concerning. Sleep yeah. tight. Ken, yeah. Ken made like an offhanded joke about uh, you know when you and the other crazy bomber wear the same dress to a party or whatnot, and that he wasn't anywhere near Los Angeles. I don't think mail from Florida to D.C. would ever be routed 
through a mail processing facility in Los Angeles. Something is weird about that second Maxine Waters body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the media began questioning what Trump's rhetoric has to do with this. I don't think anybody needs to question that, but you know, somehow they found the time, and Trump responded in really exactly the way that you would imagine, blaming the media for asking these questions for the bombing. Uh, did not seem a happy topic. This was followed up not very long later by a, I should note, not Trump supporting because Trump is not racist enough for the gentleman. Um, mm-hmm. Shooter at a, I shouldn't even call him a gentleman, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, shooter at a synagogue, the Tree of Life uh, temple in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he posted on Gab, a Twitter clone for anti-Semites and misogynists. Uh, that through your optics, he was going in and then walked into the Tree of Life with, I believe, two handguns and an AR uh, opening up fire, just going room to room, popping people as he went. Um, It was the most deadly act of anti-Semitic violence in the U.S. history. Doesn't necessarily compare with some things that went on in Europe, you know, the Holocaust. But for our shores, it was a shocking moment. And really, a mail bomb, as weird as it is, you kind of expected that at some point. I mean, I I don't want to diminish it, but that's exactly, you know, what I would have imagined going on. The Tree of Life thing just seems to come completely out of left field. Uh, Although it shouldn't have. The the anti-Semitic rumblings in society have been there for a while, you know, the, the triple brackets and whatnot, globalist and, and all that jazz. I don't yeah. know why I wasn't as shocked by, or why I was more shocked by that than the mail bombs, but I was. I think yeah. it should also be noted that he wasn't an avowed Trump supporter, but the, the kind of immediate justification was entirely Trumpian. It was about the immigrant quote-unquote caravan Mm-hmm. And George Soros funding that caravan through this Jewish relief group. Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, he didn't like Trump because Trump was not racist enough. He was too close to the globalist, another code for, for Jews. Mm-hmm. And he had previously said nice things about Jews before, and he was not immediately carpet bombing Israel. And therefore, he was a pussy ass president for anti Semites. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the slaughter just, you know, continues. There was a, uh, a case that has not gotten as much national attention um, of two young black men who were beaten by Trump-supporting uh, vigilantes, I guess would be the term, that happened just before the uh, Tree of Life synagogue shooting that got overshadowed and was kind of expectedly. I'm not alleging anything nefarious there, but... It's just a little bit depressing to me that we can have so much racist violence that we don't have time to talk or see on the news about all the racist violence. Well, also the shooting in the Kroger's. No, oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, it just piles one thing after another. It's It's been a frightening week, frightening two weeks. I mean, and we can't really take time to talk about all this racist violence while there's, you know, liberal mobs and um, migrant caravans, armies marching forth and some such. 
Yeah. yeah. Got to keep priorities straight. Um, to put a local spin on it, during the bombing campaign, our mayor was paid a visit by the FBI. He was uh, considered the target of Caesar Sayoc. He had ranted against him on his gab.ai profile before, uh, mostly about the ICE protests that happened earlier this year and Portland's sanctuary status and things like that. Um, the FBI went so far as to screen uh, Tom Wheeler's mail for a while, but ultimately I don't think he was targeted. Hmm. Wow. Oh, uh, he was also called out by name in the guy's manifesto. So. Which is not really so much of a manifesto as a screenshot on his gab profile, so yeah, that's who was bad here. Yeah, I had not been aware of that angle. Wow. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, this, you know, there's been attempts to pass this guy off as just some kind of deranged person. But, yeah, he did. There was a coherent ideology here, as awful as it is. And clearly he was acting on it. But It was coherent, but it wasn't spelled out. I mean, yeah. these millennials are even screwing up terrorism. The fucking Unabomber... <laughs> industrial society and it's whatever the hell I can't even remember that was a fucking read that was 35,000 <laughs> words on exactly what was wrong with society this guy hey, had this like guy three paragraphs in a screenshot on his twitter profile not, not even twitter profile his knockoff twitter profile oh that's yeah yeah Ugh. the uh the Tallahassee shooting, which has disrupted the governor's race in Florida, which I'm sure we'll talk about here shortly, um, also not uncommon for violence to spring from the, the incel culture, which is a, a bunch of deeply misogynistic young men who blame others for their inability to get women. Um, yeah. And it's a little bit creepy. Uh, one of the subreddits I follow actually is just chronicling different, you know, postings that incels make, keeping tabs and all this. Uh, and there was on one of their forums a post about ooh, two weeks ago, maybe ten days ago, claiming that uh, a, a account that was said to be from Florida, claiming that they were going to go, uh, what was the guy's name? Not Eric Rudolph. Um, Elliot Rogers. Yeah, he's kind of two, which the granddaddy of it all. Yeah, eleven two was the date it happened. I it was in Florida. I don't know if those two things are connected, but law enforcement has been made aware of the postings. We may have, you know, seen somebody talk about it before they actually went out and did it. Yeah. So on that happy topic, the president has dove all in on the racism as his final pitch in the midterms, because when he saw all this, what he thought he needed was more gasoline on the fire. Uh, this isn't really a proper segue, because it's, it's hard to segue off a depressing topic like that in a way that is not with silence, but... It's disturbing to me that in a time when we desperately need to heal, uh, a time when this country is coming apart at the seams, a time when I want, for all his faults, and I am not in any way saying he's a good man, but I would appreciate the President of the United States, who happens to be Donald Trump, coming out and doing something to bring us all together. I would be willing in you know the moment to not think about 
all the fights that we're having and just come together as a country. And he's not even getting close to doing that. He's doubling down on fuck those brown people and you all suck. It's just, it's terrifying, man. I really, really am terrified by the things I see around us. Like, it feels like Germany in, you know, the Gavaheimskolen days. Yeah. I mean, then, um, yeah, I linked to something, what, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that piece about stochastic terrorism. Um, and, you know, people making a very real charge at Trump for doing just that, for using this mass communication to incite random lone wolves. You know, it, it fits very well into uh, both the GOP and Fox News's kind of narrative about lone wolves and, well, we can't predict how this is going to happen. And But they've been a little more oblique about their references in the past, and it's just so much more out in the front. And like you're saying, at a time in which we're supposed to be at least talking about coming together, there's only the opposite that's present. Just, if you want to set a really low bar for a president, and I... I... I like that stochastic idea there, uh, JJ, and I, I liked it when I, I read the piece, too. If you want to set a low bar for a president, George W. Bush was a terrible president. He was not even remotely qualified for the job. He had to learn while he was going, and he fucked it up completely. I mean, he fucked it up. He was hard. the worst until now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even he understood the moment after 9-11, and he understood... Maybe I'm giving him more credit than he deserves, but I understood America's response and how we needed to be kind of led away from that. That, you know, when you're hurt and you're angry, you lash out. The day after 9-11, he went to a mosque with the yeah. TV cameras. He he understood what was going on, even if he was a shitty president. Even if he, you know, basically, not alleging a conspiracy, I don't think he's in on it, but he disregarded intelligence and his, you know, exit briefing from Clinton to a stunning degree. Um, you know, he, he let it happen in a way, not intentionally, but just by completely ignoring what everybody around him told him was the biggest threat. And even he understood the moment after it happened. Trump is so egotistical. He has no idea about it. He only sees it in terms of attacks on him and, and praise he's been lavishing. Yeah, I would say, like, with W, like, if he didn't, at least his handlers did. Like, there was always an adult in the room during the W administration. Like, somebody knew, okay, we can't go that far. Yeah, oh, they were always evil. They were never good adults in the room. But, I mean, Darth Vader was the biggest adult in the room. That was (laughs) not a good look for our country. But there was still, technically speaking, an adult in the room. Now it's, like, Stephen Miller. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I don't know that this is better in any way, but <laughs> the like George Bush himself, I don't think had any Islamic anti-Islamic feeling. No. I think he, I, I think he made charges of racism, but it came from yeah. not understanding. It didn't come from a place of, of hate. He was fine because his family liked the Saudis. They were oil people. Yeah. Right. They got along fine with the Saudis. Like Muslims weren't a problem for him. He they well, were the rich. He was rich. It's all good. 
the rest of his whole crew also, I think, didn't really, they didn't really have the kind of sentiment that we know Trump has and we know people close to Trump have. They may have seen a practical need to arrest every young Muslim male in the world, but they didn't, you know, they weren't going on about a religion of hate and... Well, you did have Bolton in his, in his gaggle. So, I mean, there, yeah. there were some real nutters who were demanding to glass the Middle East, but... Yeah, yeah. but I also can't see Trump cutting his own Spanish-language ads or anything. Oh, no. Oh. Like, there's no way he looks at a camera and speaks Spanish for 30 seconds. Not a chance in hell. If he did, it would be to make fun of it. Like he'd be pronouncing it badly and talking about how he wants he kieros some Taco Bell so everybody <laughs> should you know, go back where they came from. That's that's what he did. He'll just make Mike Pence do it, and they'll just dub Mike oh, Pence's God. voice over a video of Trump saying, just like giving a speech. <laughs> well. On that, we should probably transition away because we have a lot of election talk coming up. We are, oh, what is this, four days from the midterms? Three days from the midterms? Depends on how you count it. Three, really, I guess, yeah. Yeah, we have a house that has solidified. Uh, it is extremely likely that the Democrats will win the house. 538, as of an hour ago, gives them a six in seven chance, 85.9. They are there are basically fifteen seats that regardless what happens, Democrats will win Tuesday. And then everything else is kind of up in the the air. Anything from, you know, nineteen seats to I saw some people predicting like fifty eight are possible. Uh, yeah. and realistic in this. Um it it very well may dwarf and, and I do mean dwarf the swing in the house uh, that came with the Tea Party wave and the 2006. Uh, it's it's really looking like a once in a lifetime change. In, although I say that, but two of those other waves, which were supposed to be once in a lifetime waves, have we're in our the last time. decade. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to say each other. So just in case, y'all, before we get too deep into this, how many of you guys have a plan B? <laughs> I mean, if this all goes tits up, do you have a plan I for actually, what happens four days from now? Yeah, I, I actually have been talking with a friend of mine, and there is a little bit of a plan. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got one too. Yeah. Okay. Passports and yeah. Oh man. But where where would you go ultimately? The whole world's going fascist. I'm going to Canada right now. Oh sure, sure. It's it's okay <laughs> for now. Yeah. It's man. I'm. I'm I have 25 a friend minutes whose uh, who's family has 40 acres up in Yakutat. Uh, that's where we're going. So, All right. Uh, yeah, terrifying world. One in seven is not zero. Like, don't everybody, you know, assume this is a done deal. One in seven happens. That's basically a 15% chance, 14 and some change. That yeah. happens a lot. I mean... Yeah, that was kind of the mistake a lot of us made running up to 2016. You know, Trump had, what, 20, 30% chance? That was three out of 10. Same kind of thing here. Yeah. The low probability is not zero probability. Uh, and just like the House has firmed up, uh, looking more and more Democratic, the Senate has taken the opposite tack. Um, although it has, in the last day or so, uh, swung a little bit more back towards Democrats. Things have tightened up 
in Tennessee and Texas. Uh, Democrats mm-hmm. have pulled ahead a little bit in Arizona and Nevada. Um, so there is there is room for a Democratic Senate, but it's looking less likely. Yeah, I think the real crux of that is that the polls have swung so decisively against uh, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota. And I think that's a race now that everybody has basically said, that's one that we're going to lose. And we just don't have anything else on the table that makes up for it. So even if we do win Arizona, Nevada, and don't lose anything else like Missouri or Indiana, there's just nothing else unless there's a miracle in Texas or the polls are just wrong in Tennessee. And that's what it keeps coming back to. Uh, the Tennessee numbers, as of the last couple pollsters, one was released today, one was released yesterday, both of them showed not just a statistical debut, but an actual, like, even number. So, maybe? Yeah. I mean, possible. Late polling is unreliable. All polling mm-hmm. is, is unreliable in places like Tennessee. It's just too much of the state is rural, not connected to phones, not connected to internet. It's very hard to get a grip on people, and it's also very homogenous, so you have a hard time getting real, statistically meaningful breakdowns of people that you're able to generalize to a whole population. It's just it's a hard state. Yeah. I mean, I think if anyone's really going to surprise us still, it's it's going to be Texas. Uh, Beto is basically within or close enough to the margin of error there's been some very heavy early vote turnout in Texas. You shouldn't read too much into it. Try not to. And yet, at the same time, you see, oh, youth turnout is up like 500%. That that may have some meaning, we can hope, but it's And unlikely. it's up about 700% in Tennessee. Yeah, well, hey. And there's no way that kids like Ted Cruz. <laughs> exactly. Ted Cruz exactly. actually has higher favorability ratings than That is really crazy. Who I mean, looks at those people, regardless of politics, who looks at Texans. those two people and is like, that's the dude I want to hang I think that's actually how they managed it, Brock, is yeah. that they probably just asked, do you like Ted Cruz or Beto O'Rourke? Because if they showed a picture, people would be like, oh, it's that other guy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's tough as Texas. That's what it is. You know, that, that got people convinced. So... Texas is officially tough like a fat clay face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is not a very respectful way to speak about the Zodiac. (laughs) It's it's true. It's true. (laughs) He's leaning into that, you know, he's trying to using that to make himself more likable. He tweeted out the Zodiac killer letter on Halloween. For the second year in a row, man. I know. I know. He's, this is what he's decided to make <laughs> relatable and fun. He's the Zodiac killer. <laughs> I think people would like me better if they thought I was a serial killer. Oh, yeah. He's striking. <laughs> that was the most likable thing about him. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> One of the other Senate races that has really tightened up after being one that uh, I was frankly surprised we were running away with um, has been the Indiana Senate race where... Uh, Joe Donnelly is not anywhere near as far ahead as he used to be. Um, 
it's anywhere from an R plus four to there is one outlier, a Fox News poll that has uh, Donnelly up by seven, but most of the most recent polls have had him down. Um, yeah, anywhere from you know four points to four tenths of a point. Yeah, I, I'm kind of thinking a little bit. You know, I, I wonder how how secure some of these states like Indiana and North Dakota ever really were because we went months and months and months where there was just no polls happening there at all. And then we got some not very high quality polls in Indiana and also some not very high quality polls in North Dakota. So we really had no reason to think that these seats were safe. And yet I think that had kind of been the assumption was that somehow they could either pull it out or they had incumbency going for them. And it was a blue year. I mean, that, certainly that's what I'd been thinking, at least with Heitkamp. But uh, yeah, now that there is a lot more polling happening there, uh, even if some of it is of dubious quality, now it's showing that what we should have thought all along, these are deeply red states and these incumbents are definitely in danger. The one good news that I will pull out of that is that uh, Harrison Gratis has had a daily tracking poll out for the last uh, three polling periods. Mm -hmm. It has shown a distinct swing towards Donnelly. Uh, their October 29th through 31st tracking poll was R plus three, three and a half really. Uh, their October 30th through November 1st was R plus 0.4. And then their October 31st through November 2nd daily tracking poll was E2.4. So that there has been a, over the course of three days, a six-point swing towards the Democrats, and it happened in steps. It wasn't okay. uh, just one crazy outlier swing in a, a pattern. So maybe, hopefully? It's certainly possible. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if you managed to pull it out. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, ah, shoot. Uh, 538 we does have him favored 70% win. So. Yeah. It, it, it's the sort of environment where even if it's a tough state, you would think that there's a little bit more of an edge just because of how favorable things are. I mean, we end up winning in some of these states where we had no business winning in the first place because there were wave elections. I mean, that was the situation in Montana. Uh, in 2006, arguably, that was the situation in Virginia. It really hadn't gone full blue by that point yet. And so we had these elections we had no business winning, and yet we managed to in 2006 and held them in 2012. So maybe we'll get lucky again, but I think partisanship is probably turning, at least in a way that's not going to be helpful in these places. Well, I'm not as worried about Tester as I am about Donnelly. Tester, I think, yeah. is a pretty good fit for his state. Exactly. Yeah, I think that, too. It also helps that he's running against himself. Yeah. <laughs> Battle of the Flat Tops. Yeah, I'm, I'm, they look exactly the same. That's got to confuse incredible numbers of voters. It's the Spider-Man meme come to life, except, yeah, with flat tops. <laughs> it's like replace Spider-Man with J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> um, Nevada has... It's been weird. Um, mm -hmm. It is currently projected by 538 very, very marginally for, uh, for Heller. They give him a 52.4% chance to win the seat. Um, yeah, I'm... 
I feel confident about Nevada, I guess. And maybe I shouldn't. But that is a state that has really delivered for us lately. And I I just, I, I think they're going to do it again. I hope they're going to do it again, because if not, we're kind of fucked. I'm a little reluctant to jinx it, but I have been religiously following uh, John Ralston's uh, blog of the early vote in Nevada. He's kind of like the chief political expert of the state. Yeah, last night. It was pretty astonishing. And uh, they've built up, uh, he says that there's a Democratic average of about 48,000 votes in Clark County, and then another 1,700 in Washoe. That's counterbalanced by about, you know, 25,000 in uh, the rural counties. But the estimate is that is about where it would have to be in order to make it more democratic likely than not, you know, just barely. But uh, he, th- he thinks that's good news for Rosen and uh, Sisolak in the governor's race. So we will see. I mean, really what uh, what he says is that what Heller needs to win at this point is for one, for independents, non-Republicans and non-Republicans to be favoring him by a significant amount, by like 10% or more and continued strong rural turnout on election day. These are still things that can happen, but it's not as easy. You know, it's harder to get independents to break 10% your way unless you've been doing a lot to reach out to them and not, say, joining yourself at the hip to Donald Trump. So maybe. It looks like it's at least heading in the right direction. I think there's some reason to at least be hopeful about Nevada. I don't know about confident, but hopeful. Arizona is trending more Democratic as we go through this. Uh, Kirsten Sununa seems to have a, uh, a legitimate small lead, although Harris is in the field right now and uh, are just terrible for her. They, they have the Republican up anywhere from five to seven points, depending on the last back and forth they've gotten. But in general, um, aside from Harris, Sununa is looking pretty solid there. Um, 538 mm-hmm. gives her nearly a 60% chance to win. They're more bullish on our chances there than they are in Nevada. This one would be uh, one would be kind of special, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a very poor opinion of Arizona in general, and I, I would very much like for them to Um, one that we're not talking about so much, but I think is actually pretty possible, is uh, the Mississippi special election. You guys been looking at that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on a lot of things going right. I mean, mainly Chris McDaniel has to beat uh, the incumbent. Was it what? Uh, I'm trying to think of what her name is. I don't even so think maybe that's not going well for her, but. I don't think uh, Chris McDaniel has to beat her uh, to get into a, a top two and then just his voters stay home. Uh, because right now, Espy and Hyde Smith are neck and neck. Their projected yeah. share of the vote is 39.8 and 39.2. Chris McDaniel's taking up third place with 17% uh, of the vote in the, the projected right. outlook. But if Chris McDaniel's supporters are really that hard Trump, hard conservative who can't stand the establishment. We don't need them to 
make the final. We just need them to not go vote for Hyde Smith in the runoff, and we need our people to go out and vote. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think they'd still come home. Um, I could be wrong, but I <laughs> feel like... Establishment Republicans come home when they need to. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, over the past year, it's that. Non-establishment Republicans come home, too. <laughs> They're like, ah, well, it's better than a communist, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think I think if for some reason, like, there's a fluke and McDaniel makes the top two, then that's a possible race, although it's also the sort of thing where you'd need some kind of Roy Moore deus ex machina to make it even more competitive just because Mississippi is so, so, I, I don't want to say conservative, but I want to say like racially polarized. It's the kind of place where white people vote as a block and they vote Republican as a block. Uh, I guess they'll stay in the South because uh, the other one that seemed like it was going to be close and is still going to be close, but seems to be breaking our way is uh, Florida, where Bill yeah. Wilson, who is uh, fucking ancient, is running for re-election. Uh, and, you know, he matches the demographics of the state, I'm going to guess. I'm he's old. Sure he's, yeah, he's old. He's from New England. Uh, has a lot of health problems. Kicked off his campaign in the villages. Oh man! And by the he's, way, he's got he's got a meth shed out behind the house. I, uh, when I can say Florida that man. he Runs kicked off his campaign at the villages, and you guys know that the villages are a retirement community, when you have a state that has a world famous retirement community, that's some <laughs> weird demographics, man. That is strange but uh he's holding down and oddly enough he may be i i think dan you put forward this theory before uh with a lot of good data to back it up but he's basically riding andrew gillum's coattails yeah that's my thought is that uh he's gotten a real shot in the arm from a very dynamic and energized uh campaign for governor uh elsewhere on his ticket that uh, hopefully is going to bring in the voters that he might not have excited so much, being uh, kind of old and uh, very, very pale. Uh, <laughs> although he's an astronaut, guys. I, I just pulled up his Wikipedia. I hadn't. I, I kind of suspected astronaut. he was an astronaut, but I needed to confirm. I did not so, know he was an astronaut. He should talk about that more. Yeah, you know, like back in the seventies or something, right? Cape Canaveral and stuff. There, you know, he, he flew to Columbia. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> there's there's some compelling stuff there. He's not, he is very old, but yeah, I mean that's something to talk about. I don't know. <laughs> it's Florida. It's always a close state. I do uh, want to clarify, by the way. He's a wrestling gator. He was not a uh, like a career astronaut. He went up as a house member. Like he'd already been okay. elected to the house. And uh, huh. yeah, he went up with. Uh, I believe it was a, a Utah senator trying to remember. The second sitting member of Congress to travel into space. Huh. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, Jake Garr, Utah senator. Not quite as sexy, one. then. 
I, you know what? Wikipedia actually has a picture of him in his astronaut uniform holding a model space shuttle. And young Bill Nelson, if you if you saw, I, I bet you you'd be a little bit surprised. Is a little bit of a Robert Redford type thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Did you actually just go look it up? I, I'm looking, yeah. I did, I'm looking at it right now. That, yeah. That's hilarious. You guys are all sitting around it. this guy, old yeah. dude's young picture. <laughs> but yeah, Robert Redford. Would I, you or wouldn't you? <laughs> I'll take you into space. <laughs> Zero gravity, yeah. Oh, he's going to need it I mean, so he doesn't break the hip. Tell me you're an astronaut, I'm in. <laughs> Florida. Yeah, how about that? I guess that's as good a time as any to talk about the the governor's races. Good segue. Florida Florida really has solidified in the Democratic column. Um, 538 gives Andrew Gillum about a three and four chance to win 75.8%. This was one that people were kind of worried about at first. Yeah. Yeah, this is really heartening. I didn't yeah. realize he was that close. That's that's looking really good. I think it he really got an is. opponent so odious that it really it, it definitely helps. Yeah, DeSantis is horrible and he's got nothing going for him except, you know, he loves Trump. Trump's the one he who he's the one that Trump wants, so vote for him if you want to make Trump happy. And that's it. That's his whole pitch. On paper. Gotta screw the lids. Yeah. On paper, Gillum, um, I, I did not think was a strong candidate. He is relatively young, relatively unknown. He comes from a city who, while he's not directly personally implicated at this point, he comes from a city that is having uh, some major corruption problems on its city council, like in its city government. Uh, there would seem to be a lot to go after there. But Gillum has just he's nailed every note in this campaign. He has responded perfectly everything. I, I guess I didn't give him a fair shake. He's a better candidate than I would have thought as a resume that he had. Yeah. I, I was thinking he was going to have trouble with Florida, man, but uh, he's he's not. He seems to be doing great. It would seem, perhaps, that Florida, like Alaska, has a higher tolerance for systemic political corruption than other states. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's very true. Um, we've also got a competitive governor's race just north of there in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams has really come on hard down the stretch. Uh, she has a realistic chance of winning, guys. I mean, she's not favored, but 538 gives her 41.4% chance to win. Uh, and she's yeah. forecasted to get at least 49% of the vote in a race where they expect the Libertarian to get more than 1%. Yeah. It's another state where... The early vote, again, well, all caveats apply, looks encouraging. Uh, higher than average participation of African-Americans, actually. I think as a percentage of the population participating, they've got the highest turnout so far of any you know segment of the demographics. So, so far, so good. And I'm really encouraged. I think at the end of the day, this is probably still going to go to a runoff because that's one of the quirks of uh, Georgia elections is you need to get a majority. Uh, so 
you know, there's one libertarian candidate who's probably eating into a little bit of, I'm not sure which side he's taken out of more, probably more the Republican, but they're probably both going to be held under 50%, which will mean a runoff in December. Hopefully we can win that one outright. Um, Oprah came in to pour yeah. a bunch of star power in this and not just, uh, you know, in terms of cutting ads, she actually went door to door in a bunch of suburban Atlanta neighborhoods, uh, urging people to come out and vote for Stacey Abrams. So, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge Oprah fan, but anything that gets the excitement going, I'm pretty stoked on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, I think anything we can get out there, anything to get her over the edge, because again, she's drawn an opponent that is just so odious that it just seems like a crime if he does manage to win, even if that's what the demographics of the state really prefer. You just say, no, no, it's just so wrong that someone this awful and mean and terrible would get elected. So let's hope. <laughs> We'll keep running up north then. Our next real competitive race is in Ohio. Uh, Richard Cordray, who is uh, recently of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, was kicked out of there. Um, well, I wouldn't say kicked. He was politely pushed out the doors that he had run for governor of Ohio. Uh, seems to be cleaning up. Uh, is polling better than Mike DeWine, who's his opponent? He has... Uh, a five and nine chance, according to 538. Mike DeWine and Richard Cordery had previously competed in an election for, I believe it was Attorney General of Ohio. That's right. And DeWine won that. So this is a little bit of a chance for Cordery to uh, get revenge. Mm -hmm. That was the 2010 red wave. And uh, hopefully, yeah, things are, the tide is going the other direction, we can hope. One I want to point out as a, a special mention here, not because it seems competitive, it, it actually doesn't. 538 gets Larry Hogan in Maryland uh, better than 99% chance to win. But over the last few days, Ben Jealous has been, well, really performing quite well in, in some polls to the point where I'm not ready to believe that, you know, the ridiculous margin of like 20 points that Hogan had has evaporated, but maybe not out of the realm of possibility that we're competitive in this one. I mean, at least more than the aggregate 0.7% chance 538 gives Ben Jealous to win. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a state where the registration advantage certainly is for Democrats, and but... Ben Jealous yeah. has been a national profile figure for the African-American community. He was director of the NAACP for a while. Is he still? I haven't heard of them getting a new person. Uh, I think he stepped down to do this. I, okay. Yeah, uh, I could look that up as well. Yeah, I, it's this difficult situation where the uh, uh, was it, what was I going to say? Yeah, the uh, incumbent is particularly popular. He's viewed as not that kind of Republican. He's got a he got Democratic supermajorities in the legislature that have basically hemmed him in. So he's not really able to govern as a Republican, even if he cared to. So that may be buoying him along and keeping him more competitive than otherwise he might be in Maryland. I was thinking the last governor, the last Republican governor of Maryland kind of got in as a fluke in 2002, uh, beating a pretty lackluster campaign by one of the Kennedys, I want to say. 
and then yeah just got steamrolled by uh o'malley in 2006 but that does not seem to be repeating here we'll uh we'll venture further out west but one that is near and dear to my heart uh Scumbag and noted asshole Scott Walker, which oh, yeah. is going down in Wisconsin. Uh, he's got a three and eight chance according to the numbers guys, but uh, he's well behind in pretty much all the polling. Uh, he's got his ass smacked around by the state Supreme Court a uh, number of times, mostly over elections. I think he'd probably want to delay his own reelection at this point. Um, but he is very likely to lose, and it will warm my horrible, horrible little heart. Yeah, he, he's the worst. <laughs> Just absolutely. A yeah, that guy's absolute garbage. Yeah. Best of luck, people of Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's to their eternal shame that they've elected him three times, but maybe they've learned. <laughs> But, I mean, you know, we come from the state of Don Young and Ted Stevens, so That's it's right. hard to throw stones in those kind of glass houses. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, Packers fans, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll step across the Mississippi to Iowa, which is not your typical Midwestern state. It's like a Nebraska that's not entirely shitty all the time. Um their incumbent Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, is, uh, well, I mean, she's holding in there. It would be no great surprise if she won, but she is mildly behind. She's uh, still basically, uh, statistically even, but uh, 538 shows her running at a 47% chance to win. Um, it's a weird state. It is very culturally rural, conservative, grows a lot of corn, but it does. It has a weird flair for progressive policy choices, even while typically being a very Republican state overall at the state level. This was one of the first states with gay marriage uh, through a Republican-appointed court. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it, it's got definitely this kind of progressive streak and pedigree. I mean, Tom Harkin was their senator forever, but also Chuck Grassley was their senator forever, so it was kind of this... Janus State presenting two very divergent uh, views of the world. And of course, Steve King has also been a congressman there forever, and he's an actual Nazi. So there's that going on as well. Um, yeah, it, it's been pretty blue. Uh, Al Gore carried it in 2000. Uh, John Kerry, yeah, John Kerry lost it in 04, but uh, it came back around. Uh, but it was actually less competitive in 2016 than Texas. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to figure out. In a lot of ways, like our, our brother Chris here from the, the faraway socialist republic of Vermont that currently, <laughs> according to 538, got a 93.9% .9 chance of reelecting the Republican governor at the same time as yeah. Bernie Sanders in the Senate. 99% yeah. chance that Bernie Sanders gets reelected. Yeah. Who are these people who vote for the two of them together? Because it's a significant That's a number. damn good question. Like, if you look it, at it, at least 40% of your state had to pick those two together to get to the yes, and I, get. I know very many of them. 
I, I'm going to send Jerry Seinfeld. I think we should send Jerry Seinfeld on a fact-finding mission. <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> That's a reference that I love that nobody under, like, 30 is going to get. <laughs> oh, man. We'll go back to the Midwest, to the place that is much more shitty than Iowa, but uh, seems to have a decent chance of electing a Democrat, Kansas is within spitting distance of telling Chris Kobach to go fuck himself. So that's good. That would be something. Yeah. It's a solid and valid opinion. <laughs> he, he should. He really should. He's also the worst. Uh, that's a three-way race. There's yeah, Kobach, uh, the uh, Democrat who, God damn it, who is not Kobach. <laughs> that's the Laura Kelly. That's right. Yeah, she came out of a fairly crowded Democratic primary. And uh, then there is an independent who's kind of pooching things up a little bit. Greg Probably. Orman, but a lot of his top campaign staff just resigned the other day and urged people to vote for Laura Kelly. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully they uh, take his, take people take their advice because, yeah, Kobach is the worst and it'd be good to see him lose. Yeah, I, I believe it was kind of led by his treasurer, but there was a number of, of top departures and they. They penned a letter that basically said, this election means too much. Chris Kobach is too dangerous. Please vote for Laura Kelly. Um, yeah. And she is holding a, a small but seemingly firm lead in the most recent polls. Uh, it's less than a point, so within the margin there, but it's represented by at least two of them. So maybe, I hope. I don't have a lot of hope for Kansas, but, you know. Yeah. It's Chris Kobach is a terrible human being, and it's possible. Yeah, it's another one of those states where, or elections where just the Republican running is just so terrible that you'd hope that karma would make them lose. But Donald Trump is president of the United States, so uh, yeah. We'll talk about, well, four more states, but one we'll only briefly touch on. In Nevada, um, Sisolak, and we mentioned this before, is, is running behind, it appears, but not so far. He's gotten nearly 40, 46% chance to win based on what the numbers guys see. But you were talking about uh, Ralston on the ground saying it's looking better yeah. for him in the early vote than we would have expected. Yeah, yeah, that uh, there have been, there's about a 4% advantage right now for Democrats on the early vote, and the early vote has been massive for a midterm. And there's at least some reason to believe that what's been keeping Republicans competitive in that at all has been an overperformance of their usual election day voters in the rural counties who've been voting absentee just to get, you know, get their votes banked. And that's a great thing to do. Get It's better to have votes in the hand than hope to have them on election day. But the flip side is now there's no more votes to come in on election day, or at least fewer than there ordinarily would. Uh, right now, uh, probably two-thirds of all people who are going to vote in the election at all have voted right now. So there is at least, unless Laxalt, the Republican candidate, performs extremely well among independents and uh, or if he managed to get a lot of crossover from Democrats, then he's going to be in real trouble. He's going to have to turn out, you know, the least likely voters from the rural counties 
in order to make up for the gap that he's currently experiencing from the Democratic edge in not just Las Vegas, which is Clark County, but Washoe County, which is basically the swing urban, which has a Republican registration advantage of about 2%. But uh, I believe the current Democratic uh, edge there in people who have actually voted right now has, is around somewhere around 4%. So they're running way behind where they should be in Washoe County. So, wow, that's good news. Yeah, actually. Yeah, so he's pretty much hoping for the sovereign citizen vote. Exactly. Which uh, is not a good bet. The Bundys, but the Bundys yeah. actually hate him. They, they are. Well, of course they do, because he's a politician. He, well, he's the attorney general. Yeah. Oh. So, <laughs> he's the yeah, he, he's counting on the Bundys, but the Bundys hate his ass. So, <laughs> he, he, he may be less likely to win than Heller winning re-election. Let's go north then, because we do share one third of my state's southern border with Nevada. Um, Oregon has a surprisingly competitive governor's race this year. I'm actually kind of scared. Yeah, what the hell? Uh, 538 still gives Kate Brown a better than 80% chance to win, but I don't actually believe that's true anymore. They're just stop, trying to stop riots from happening in Portland. Yeah. The, the polling has been incredibly close. The Oregonian, which I have mentioned before, has a, a vague conservative editorial lean, has endorsed the Republican in this race, uh, wrote a fawning piece about how this is his moment finally come. Yeah. Not. Um, Newt Bueller is... A culture warrior in a lot of ways, uh, but he masks it well. He hides his ridiculous votes against, you know, abortion services and whatnot behind some protest over something the governor's doing. Actually, about the bill, he has run pretty hard on shutting down our sovereign state legislation that we have. Uh, kind of hitched his campaign to a ballot measure we have that would do the same. He is within the margin of error uh, of most of the polling that I've seen in the state. So, uh, at a I'd love to believe that Kate Brown has a four and five chance, but I think it's closer to she's probably sixty percent uh, favorite. Yeah. Um, I I don't. I would not be surprised if it flips, but I don't expect it to. And also, if it does flip, I might have to find a new state. That's well. That's one of our. Uh, I think that's one of our darkest timeline moments. There is, you know, things go really bad, then we'll know they're really, really, really going bad when uh, Kate Brown loses. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one that I want to briefly touch upon is uh, California, not because it's competitive. Gavin Newsom has a better than 99% chance to win, according to the numbers guys. But I am almost positive that will be a two-year stint in the governor's race for him. Um, I, JJ actually took him from me in my draft. Damn right. <laughs> I firmly expect Gavin Newsom to be a vice president. At least. Yeah. I think he has, uh, he could definitely make a claim, and he's young and pretty enough that can run on Trudeau's coattails to make a strong push for the POTUS. Yeah, he, uh, he has a very compelling personal story. I, his actions on the, the courtyard, the court steps in San Francisco basically set in process the entire thing that ended with Oberfell being rehotted in same-sex marriage. From the state of California having to step in and sort out what the hell happens now because these people got married when it wasn't legal, to the Supreme Court having to decide whether those people were still married after it got cut. It was a whole thing, 
and he was there at the very start of it, took a, a very prominent step out when other national politicians weren't able to. He's young. He's also, and it's weird considering this is a positive because we're actually kind of moving away from this in our, our selections for presidential picks, but he's white. And if you're a non-white candidate trying to reassure middle America in a lot of ways, Gavin Newsom is somebody who is progressive, who you can connect to, and it won't betray you know, your values, who also speaks very well to white America in the suburbs and whatnot. I think there's so much upside. No, he's got a lifetime of very corporate-friendly speech that will play very, very well in middle America with independent voters. He can talk economy. California's huge. He can talk legal weed and health care. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot to offer. So, Constitutionally, though, he can't run with Harris. So that is true. Mm-hmm. But you know, a Cory Booker, Gavin Newsom ticket would sell uh-huh. a lot of center votes after. Oh, wow! <laughs> yeah, jeez, that was a slap stick for you. The last. I have uh, a quick. Yeah, go for it. I have a quick California thing to bring up, which has intrigued me because it's been so consistent, and even with the most recent polling. It's in the Senate race. I know we're not talking about the Senate anymore, but I've I've been very interested to see that the candidate numbers for Feinstein and DeLeon almost always add up to something in the 60s or 70s, which is really weird considering that she's the incumbent senator and has like 100% name recognition. Mm -hmm. There's still like 30 to 40% of the people who are like, "Mm, not sure. Well, the rest are Republicans. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's no Republican in the, the, the election there, so they just don't care. Or, well, uh, what did I see? Didn't the California Republican Party actually endorse De Leon or some big California <laughs> paper? Because of Kavanaugh, really. Yeah, I would expect so. I, I would expect them to be going after Feinstein hard. Like, yeah. if they can topple her with a new dem then maybe they think that they can get go after that new dem in the next race yeah. or just you know, you know you, you made us go through the whole Kavanaugh experience and now you have to suffer for it so I don't yeah. know I mean if I were them though I wouldn't you almost rather want Feinstein at this point this is going to be her last term in the Senate there's no way she runs again mm-hmm. in six years you don't want to face somebody who has incumbents. If yeah. it's Feinstein, you're going to run for an open seat in six years. If it's De Leon, you have to run against a guy who's been out there making connections and raising He's... money for six years. Well, yeah, but she's got power up up in committee, man. Been there for decades. Yeah. yeah. But you could get rid of her now and get rid of that power in committee and just take crack shots at him forever. That's, and that's fair. Stick it to feminists. That's, you know, that, that's, I think, what it would be more, more about than anything else. The last one I want to touch on briefly is Alaska, which had its governor mm-hmm. race shaken up. Um, the incumbent governor and independent who formed the kind of fusion ticket with the Democratic lieutenant governor uh, has dropped out of the race. It followed a uh, him demanding and getting the resignation of his lieutenant governor over what has not really been disclosed other than to say that they were inappropriate comments made to a, a female somebody. I, I got the impression it was a reporter, not a co-worker or something. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, he eventually pulled out, uh, and his his coalition has mostly, uh, and according to you know Nate Silver, it's been backed up by the polling, mostly solidified around baggage, which mm-hmm. has uh, swung this race pretty hard. Dunleavy is still expected to win, but it's it's no longer a, a walk in the park. Begich has a, a decent chance, uh, more than a third. Yeah, I mean, things go weird. Uh, Dunleavy is at least less well-known than Begich, so that's going to be something that's in his favor a little bit. Um, Begich is still. forecasted to get 47% of the vote, with Dunleavy taking 51 according to 538. So a, a very yeah. modest swing would, would flip that. For, for I'm trying to say that was probably the percentage he got in... 2014 when he ran against Sullivan. So, yeah, I mean, that's about where Democrats can get to if they're in really good shape. But the, still yeah, that's just Alaska. Like the maximum number of Democrats in Alaska. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The rest of us leave. <laughs> just too often. Just don't yeah. want to deal with it anymore. We yeah. really do, dude. We really do. Mm-hmm. I mean... And baggage isn't all that great. I mean, God, he's like a younger Alaskan Tim Kaine. Like, <laughs> he may actually be older than Tim Kaine. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh wow, really? Yeah. I always thought of him as a young guy. Like, he was the best we had on the bench after uh, Knowles stopped running for crap. Yeah, uh, he was, uh, and he did get elected really young. Uh, he's 56. Yeah, he's four years younger than Tim Kaine. Oh man, okay, barely younger. Yeah, he's just Alaskan Tim Kaine. Then. He, he he was kind of big on the scene in Anchorage when he was very young. I think he was elected to the Anchorage City Council when he was probably in his twenties, maybe. Twenty-six, uh, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, and uh, got elected mayor of Anchorage relatively young as well. But uh, he yeah, failed at kind of being mayor of Anchorage twice before he eventually got. He ran in 94 and 2000 and finally was elected in 2000. Right, because uh, that was a three-way race, as I remember, where the incumbent, George Wirtz, was also challenged by another Republican who had been mayor before, Rick Maestrom, and uh, Begich got a plurality, and that was the same year there was an initiative to basically eliminate the runoff if a candidate got over 45%, and he just made it over. So I, I just... I, I want to put that in perspective. If you ever feel like you're trying to do something and you're never not going to make it, Mark Begich spent a goddamn decade running to be mayor of Anchorage and finally got over that fucking hill. There you go. Yeah. That is that is That should not be inspiration, bro. <laughs> like, in the end of the day, he's mayor of Anchorage. Like, <laughs> but he wanted to do it, man. king of shit mountain. Like, it was fail a little and nicer fail back and then. fail I don't... and you finally <laughs> like, make it. After, I mean, what you really said is after 10 years, Mark Baggage knew all of the best weed dealers in Anchorage. <laughs> they had him elected mayor. <laughs> in Anchorage. Oxycontin. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the 90s. We, we right. weren't at Oxy then. <laughs> all right, guys. That is going to do it for us this week. We've been almost exactly an hour. Uh, I will try and get this edited tomorrow after i get home from work and posted so that if anybody is listening and doesn't know how they're gonna vote yet well dumb 
Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> now you've listened to us talk about what we think. So Shame maybe, on you all. <laughs> maybe it brought you to a decision. All right. Thanks for joining me, guys. Later. Have a good one. Good night, everyone.